from John 6, verses 52 through 66. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard of this, said this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples, his, I'm sorry, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, "Does this cause you to stumble? What then, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life; the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life." But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it, was given, it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the twelve, you do, not, you do not want to go away also, do you? And, G- and Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Father God, you are inexplicably holy in your glory, and your word, your words are truly the words of eternal life. Father, who can we turn to? Father, be with Chris as he speaks and teaches. Help us understand, help us comprehend, so that we may be drawn closer to you and reflect the glory of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Good morning. By way of reminder, we are <clears throat> we are today looking at our second 
passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we began looking at 1 Peter last week with the mind to study Peter's letters in conjunction with the narrative events or the teaching points that involve or affect Peter as a person, as a follower of Jesus Christ. We noted last week that this letter is intended to be read, listened to, understood, responded to by those who are elect sojourners, chosen by God and not at home at the moment. Those who are sanctified by the Spirit and cleansed by the blood of Christ. Those who were called to obey Christ. Now, while it's true that this letter was written at a specific point of time in history to a specific group of people whose cities of residence were even mentioned in the introduction, this letter by extension applies to us. It was written to them, it was preserved for us, and in its application, it applies completely to us because we are, in fact, elect sojourners, not at home in this world, sanctified by the Spirit, cleansed by the blood of Christ, and called to obedience in Christ. Would you please stand with me to honor the Word of God as we read together from 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your hearts by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Thank you, Lord, for your living and life-giving word. May May we be changed by it today. Amen. Beautiful passage, and the plan for today is pretty straightforward. What I'm going to do is we're going to move without any kinds of fanciness directly through this text, and I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning, kind of pull down, pull the curtain aside. In preparation, I print out the text 
and take notes. And I don't usually carry these up here, but this morning I decided that that's what I was going to do and preach through the notes. Um, I recently decided when it comes to the outline that I use up here to move that from 11 font to 12 font. The problem is that the writing on my notes are definitely not 12 font, so I appreciate your patience with me if I have to stop and take a closer look this morning. The idea, like I said, is to move through the passage and to consider each of the subsections that are found in this particular portion of scripture. What we're going to look at is, um, well, let's call it four, one, and finish. We're going to look at four separate commands that Peter lays out for the people of God in this section. We're going to look at one lesson about Christ, and then we're going to finish this section. And in fact, it completes what we know as a bookend finish, meaning that what we saw at the very beginning of chapter one and what we see at the end of chapter one will act as bookends and the imagery will be reflected from beginning to end. It's it's very beautiful, in fact. So uh, I hope that I can communicate it accurately to you. But first, before we jump into this, the first word that we encounter in verse 13 is the word, therefore. And whenever you come across the word therefore in scripture, it's calling you to look backwards, to see what came before, because this is the transition, okay? If you recall, I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but if you recall and had the opportunity to hear what was talked about last week in the first 12 verses, not chapters, in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, um, the idea is this. I'll summarize it for you in a statement. We who share the dynamic details of the audience of Peter's letter. We have been born again into a living hope and unfailing faith unto salvation in Christ alone. All right, it's a beautiful theological declaration that Peter walks his readers through. You have been born again. You have been born again into a living hope. There is faith that is unfailing because it comes from God and it is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. And in fact, that is where salvation is found in the resurrected Christ and in Christ alone. And you are partakers in that resurrection. So when Peter says, therefore, he is calling you back to that truth, that reality that he spent 12 verses laying out beautifully for us. And he moves immediately into command number one. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Command number one. Command number one is that we hope thoroughly upon the grace of God that is revealed in Christ. Hope thoroughly upon the grace of God revealed in Christ. Let's take a look at verse 13. He uses the, well, it's translated in the ESV, preparing your minds for action. This is the concept that at some point in your life, I'm I'm sure you've heard a pastor explain. This is the girding up the loins of your mind concept, tucking your tunic into your belt so that you are prepared for action, okay? Now, the application is not a physical one, It's not preparing the loins of your body for action. It's preparing the loins of your mind. 
And what's being communicated there is this idea of practical intelligence. Prepare yourself with practical intelligence and be alert. Sober-minded is the idea of not being influenced away from the reality of the situation. So be alert. And the command is very clear. And when I say command, I'm literally talking about in the Greek, this is written as a command. So I'm not inventing this concept of command. Peter is in fact commanding. And you could make the argument that he's getting a little pushy here, right? Because we go from this beautiful description of what salvation is, of what hope is, of the foundation of your hope, and that that hope is extended in faith, and that it's based on Christ, and it's rooted in the resurrection. And then all of a sudden he says, therefore, because of this reality, I'm laying out commands, and the commands are going to be active, I had a conversation last week after church with a friend, and he said, so you talked about this concept of unfailing faith, of true faith, genuine faith, because it comes from God and it is rooted in Christ. What does it look like? And I wasn't prepared at the time to be able to say, oh, just wait until next Sunday. But the answer is, when Paul, when Peter, sorry, it's going to happen, when Peter lays out these commands... What he's doing is he's making the argument that following these commands is going to be how this genuine faith is expressed. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second because I built quite a case last week that the faith does not depend on us. It's rooted entirely in Christ. It is the gift of God. And at no point is Peter going to make the argument that in order to make the faith valid, we must act in such a way. In fact, that is the opposite. And we'll see that when we get to command number four, which is the command that brings all of them together. I realize I might have just set you up for confusion on that one. Apologies if that is the case. Hear me through to the end and hopefully the Lord will settle it in our minds. Command number one, set your hope thoroughly on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in the ESV, it's rendered set your hope thoroughly, set your, I'm sorry, set your hope fully. What this means is the idea of hope thoroughly, hope completely. But it's important to note that the phrase is not intended to end with hope thoroughly. It's what you hope thoroughly in. It's hope thoroughly in the grace of God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What this means is that the hope, the hope that is extended in faith, is not to be in any way, shape, or form set upon myself. It's not in any way, shape, or form to be set upon what I bring to the table, what I can do, how I can in any way. The hope is to be set thoroughly, completely, in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is when we hear things like grace brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and if you pull back the Greek here, it's literally the word apocalypse. That immediately in our mind goes, oh, that's future tense. Oh, that's what's coming in the future. This revelation of the fullness of Christ, we await that in the future. So it looks to me like what Peter's saying here is, um, I don't really need to worry about setting the fullness of my faith. 
until that end day when the fullness of Christ is revealed in the apocalypse. But I would warn you not to go that direction because every part of the verbiage in this verse is present tense. There is nothing in this verse that is future tense. Everything is present. So what Peter's declaring here is the reality that Christ is being revealed. The revelation of Christ is happening present tense. And as Christ is being revealed, you are called, we are commanded to set our faith, to set our hope completely in him, not in anything else, not in anyone else, and in no way, shape, or form in anything that we might bring to the table. Remember, hope is, for lack of a better description, the foundation. It is the confident expectation of what is true and what is right. Faith flows out from that hope. And so in command number one, Peter is basically saying this, align your faith with its true source. Hope thoroughly upon the grace of God that is revealed in Christ. On to command number two, picking up in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I think it's pretty clear to see what command number two is here. Be holy in all your behavior. Be holy in all of your conduct. Now, let's set these verses apart and talk about them for a minute. Verse 14 says, as obedient children. And what tends to happen is as soon as we come across the word obedient, we start thinking in terms of reward. Oh, well, if I'm going to be obedient, then there is in store for me a reward. Or if I'm to be obedient, then what I'm doing is that I am showing that I am in fact this, or I am demonstrating that, or there is some way in which I am now setting my hope in some way, shape, or form on myself. But Peter was very clear in command number one that our hope is to be set entirely and thoroughly in the grace of God revealed in Christ. So when it comes to obedience, our mind cannot go that direction. Indeed, the concept of obedience here in the Greek is not a concept of blindly doing what is told for a reward. The concept of obedience is rooted in the idea of submission. Not a popular word, I know that. And it's going to get really unpopular when we get to chapter 3, but <laughs> we'll see how that goes. The idea of obedience is rooted in the concept of submission. And what submission means is that I am placing myself under the authority of another. It is a willful and deliberate action to place myself under the authority of another. So when Peter says here, as obedient children, he's saying, you who have placed yourself under the authority of your father, who is God. So from the context of we have willfully placed ourselves under the authority of God, we get this. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The idea there literally is do not fashion yourselves 
in your inordinate desires, which were a part of you back when you did not have relationship. Because this idea of former ignorance, lack of knowledge, we're back to the concept of knowledge that is based on relationship. Not fact-based knowledge, which we're going to see here in a couple minutes, but this is knowledge based on relationship. Your ignorance is because you were not in relationship with God. You were not in relationship with Christ. You knew not because you were not. But now that you are, you know. Having submitted yourself to God as Father, placed yourself under his authority, you know him. You have relationship with him. You know Christ. You have relationship with Christ. And what you are called to do here is to not fashion yourself in a manner consistent with how you acted before you knew Christ, before you had relationship with him. The other side of that coin is, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. The command comes out, emulating the character of God. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Interesting use of this word called in verse 15, because the word itself can either mean to summon and have a commanding nature to it. I have summoned you, I'm an authority, you come to me. Or it can also have the idea of inviting. Now, it doesn't matter in this context which way you go with that. Whether God has summoned you, and I'm not going big picture to salvation, or God has invited you, and again, not going big picture to salvation. You previously walked in your former ignorance. You had no relationship with God. You do now have relationship with God. God has, in fact, called you. He has summoned you to be his, and he invites you to walk in obedience as you submit yourself to him. And the call is to set yourself apart, to be holy as God is holy. Now he says to be holy in all your conduct. Small little word there that probably gets overlooked. But what it means, once again, as in command number one, set your hope thoroughly, completely in the grace of God through Christ. This is the idea now All of your conduct, every bit of it, every bit of it should reflect the holiness of God. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, where is it written, you shall be holy for I am holy? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer is it's written in the book of Leviticus. It's found there five times directly. And if you understand it in the Hebrew, it's really this idea of you shall be holy for I am holy, which is rendered beautifully and accurately here in the uh, English translation of the New Testament. Now, what is the context of those five places that it's found in Leviticus? Well, five times in Leviticus, God makes a declaration that you, the people of God, his people, should in fact represent his holiness in the way that they act. And it's in the discussion about these things. Number one, dietary laws, what you would eat, what you would not eat. Number two, honoring your parents. Kids in the room, be holy because God is holy when it comes to honoring your parents. Number three, 
Not making child sacrifices. That may or may not be connected to the one previously, so you definitely should honor your parents. Number four, the idea of morality and immorality, defining what is appropriate when it comes to relationships. And number five, specifically towards the priesthood. Now, let me address this. When I mentioned that you shall be holy for I am holy is found quoted from the book of Leviticus, some of you may have been tempted to go, oh, well, that's from the Old Testament law and we are free from the Old Testament law. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. So therefore, I get to kind of wipe this out and not have to deal with it. But let me caution you simply because the concept of God's holiness and his call for his people to reflect his holiness in the way that they live is not a law concept. It is bigger than that. It is a character of God concept. It is not tied up in its completeness to the law itself. It supersedes the law in every way because it is the revelation of God himself. I am holy, therefore you should be holy as well. Peter captures that and he communicates it as command number two. Live your identity as belonging to God. God is holy. You are in him. Be holy. On to verse 17 and command number three. And if you appeal to him, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Command number three found in verse 17 Conduct yourselves with fear. Now he begins this command with the idea of if you appeal to him, God, as father who judges, the idea there is to distinguish or decide between cases and matters. So the father who judges impartially without preference according to each one's deeds. It's kind of the back load, that's the, that's the front end, not the back end. That's the front end that sets the context for this command. You call on him, you call on God as father, and he judges impartially. So conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. It's interesting that the context of this command is the context of judgment, It's not immediately where I would go in my thinking. We've had so much conversation up to this point in the text about your faith being a gift from God, rooted in Christ. What makes it unfailing is its genuineness. That we should set our hope fully in him and not on ourselves. But there's always the reminder, always the reality that the one that we call father is also the impartial judge. Your conduct, conduct yourselves, literally in the Greek means to busy yourself. 
to go about your business, to go about your conduct on a day-to-day basis. Busy yourselves with fear. And what's interesting here is that in the Greek, this word for fear can go one of two ways. It can go down the path of respect, or it could literally go down the path of terror. Because for those who stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you could go down the path of respect, or you could end up down the path of terror. Now, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who obtain as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our soul, like we saw last week. I'm not standing up here saying you better be careful because you're going to end up on the dark judgment side of God's character if you don't follow the commands to set your hope fully on him, be holy, and conduct yourselves with fear. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Peter is reminding his audience that the one that they call out to, the one that they appeal to, the one who is father, is in fact also the impartial judge. And they had better not take his grace and compassion and mercy for granted. In fact, he steps next into a discussion to kind of drive that point home. But before we get there, let's bring a conclusion to this command number three. Technically and fully what he's saying here when we get into the next verse, sorry, verse 18 Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, he uses the word know here to begin verse 18. This is not the concept of knowledge based on relationship. This is the concept of knowledge based on fact. You know for a fact that you were redeemed. Now, why do you know that for a fact? Well, you know it because of the relationship that you have with Christ, the fact that you are found in Christ, that you have received hope, confident expectation, and the expression of that in faith, that it is genuine faith because it's a gift of God and it's rooted in the resurrection of Christ. You know, based on those realities, you know for a fact that you were ransomed. And you were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, that which was passed down to you, that which you formed yourself according to before you had relationship knowledge of God. And so, like he said earlier, don't go back and and reform yourself according to those passions, but instead know that you were ransomed from those things. A price was paid And the statement that he makes about the price that was paid is that the price was not paid from perishable things such as silver and gold, but rather with the precious blood of Christ. Now I'm going to pause there and ask you to take a look at the irony. When we, in the context of life today, refer to things like silver and gold, we refer to them as some kind of metals. And the word we use is precious These are precious metals. But look at Peter, and by extension, God's perspective. What are the metals? Perishable. Ultimately, nothing. And what is it exactly that is precious? It is, in fact, the blood of Christ. 
So when we say you have been purchased, your redemption has been purchased, your redemption has been purchased by something that is in fact infinitely valuable, and that is the blood of Christ. And so do not presume upon that which was paid in the way that you live. Do not presume upon the grace of God, but in fact, conduct yourselves with fear during the time in which you live, not at home in this world. At this point, we stop from commands. We've moved pretty quickly through three of them. And we take a detour. And the detour is a short lesson about Christ. Peter recognizes that he just talked about the preciousness of the blood of Christ. And so he moves from verse 19 into verse 20. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. There are so many beautiful single sentences that you can take out of Peter's writing in this first chapter, and this is another one of those. It's a beautiful short lesson, just two verses here, about Christ. Let's dissect it briefly. He says in verse 20 that he, Christ, was foreknown. This is again the idea of having relationship beforehand. We saw this back in verse 2 when it was used to describe the elect, the audience of this scripture. It is now being used to describe Christ. And that's going to be a key finishing contrast that's going to be how this section begins to end. We're going to see the beginning point with the emphasis on us. This is what you, the audience, have received from God. And then it's going to finish with, this is Christ. And he is the basis upon which you have received what you have received from God. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Literally before the conception of the orderly arrangement. Before any of this began. And if he was foreknown before any of this began, that meant that he was in relationship. And what we're talking about here is this beautiful relationship that existed among the Godhead. And in the fullness of time, what did the father do? He laid out a plan. And what would that plan include? It would include breaking the beautiful fellowship that existed from eternity past in order to accomplish what? For Christ to be born in human flesh, to live, to die, and in his death to pay the price for sin, to be raised from death to life, to be glorified, that is the depth and the complexity that causes Peter to make the statement that the blood of Christ is infinitely precious because of what it cost. This beautiful, perfect relationship is temporarily taken apart so that Christ would come down, live, die, resurrection, glory. This is what is of infinite, precious value and worth. But it's made manifest. It's clearly visible. 
And it's clearly visible for our sake because otherwise we wouldn't even know that this beautiful thing was happening. So after reminding us of the beauty of the plan that brought Christ to us, he finishes with command number four. And this is the command that's going to tie the others together and give it a big picture purpose. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Command number four, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now he begins this verse by saying, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And we have to talk about this idea of purification because you might be tempted to think, oh, what do we mean here? Is this a, are we, are we going back to this imagery of the Old Testament where there's sacrifice, collection of blood, sprinkling of blood for ceremonial purification? Uh, yes, in fact, that is the imagery that Peter is alluding to. But it is not a physical purification by the sprinkling of blood which we know from that time period only temporarily covered sin until the great, precious, infinitely valuable ransoming sacrifice could be paid. He's saying that this is, in fact, a purification, a ceremonial cleansing of your spirit. And it's not happening by the sprinkling of blood. What is it happening by? Well, according to him, it's happening by obedience to the truth. Well, that's interesting. Don't fall back into the have to do what I'm told to yield these results. We've already covered that that's not what obedience is about. Obedience is about willfully submitting ourselves under the authority, lordship, kingship, fathership of God. So, ceremonial purification. Our spirits are ceremonially cleansed as we submit ourselves under the kingship of God and under the truth. What is the truth? Well, at this point, the idea of the truth is that the grace of God is revealed in Jesus Christ with the command to set your hope on him. The truth is also that he who called you is holy with the command to also be holy. And the truth is that God is father and impartial judge. So conduct yourselves with fear. Submitting ourselves to this truth yields the result of I will now turn to the people around me and they will be my brothers and sisters in Christ. There will be brotherly love. But that's not the command. That's the result. That's not the command. The command takes it a big step forward. The command is what? Love one another. And as you can imagine, he goes from the love concept of phileo to the love concept of agape. This is the fulfilling concept of love. This is the revelation of God himself concept of love. This is the self-sacrifice I give of myself for the better. You are more important than I am. That is how we are called to treat those next to us, fellow receivers of the grace of God, fellow receivers of this faith that is rooted in Christ in the resurrection. 
We're not just called to love one another because it's possible to love one another in a way that grumbles. Kind of like the whole love your enemy thing. It's possible to not like your enemy. I mean, they're your enemy, right? But to love them, to act in a way that is in their best interest, to maybe even sacrifice a little bit on their behalf. You know, then we can, well, I've, I've loved my enemy. Peter doesn't leave room for that confusion in the way that he writes this. It's not just love one another. It's love one another earnestly, intently is the idea, from a pure heart. So by adding those two caveats, what he's saying is that your degree of intensity by which you are called to love your brothers and sisters, fellow partakers in the faith that's rooted in Christ, should be a degree of intensity and also that it should come from a pure heart, that your motivation should not be, oh, I'm doing this because I have to do this, that your motivation should be a motivation of purity. You have been sprinkled, cleansed, your conscience cleansed, your motives cleansed, and with that cleansing, walk forward in the way that you sacrifice and give of yourself for one another. I want to pause here because I want to commend Sylvania Church. When I read this passage where Peter challenges those who have received this faith to love one another with a degree of intensity and to love one another with pure motivation, y'all, this is what I have seen happen in this church. This is the beauty of the following of this command. Because what it does is it takes every command previously, the command to set your hope on the grace of God. We would not be able to love one another the way that we are called to love one another if our hope and our faith was not set on the grace of God and what was revealed in Christ. If we had not committed ourselves to the grace of God and the hope that's found in Christ, we would not be able to love one another the way that we have actively, obediently taken steps in this church to begin to love one another. If we had not recognized the holiness of God and taken seriously the command to set ourselves apart for something different, if we did church as usual, the way that most people do church as usual, we would not be able to love one another intently with a pure heart. And if we did not fear God, if we did not conduct ourselves in the fear of God, we would not be able to walk in obedience, take these steps in obedience towards loving one another from a pure heart. I commend you, but I challenge you as well. Do not grow weary in well-doing. And also know this, the more that we walk in obedience, submit ourselves to Christ, submit ourselves to God, and walk in obedience to these commands, it's going to become more and more difficult. That's what scripture says. You desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will what? You will suffer persecution. So don't pat yourself on the back. Be encouraged as the body of Christ, taking steps in obedience to love one another intently. But don't think you've reached the point where it's all good. 
Finally, the bookend, the finish. Verses 22 through 25. I left off in the middle of a sentence there, so I'm going to back up to the beginning of 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the book and conclusion to this first section. Let me walk you through the beauty of the bookends. In verse 23, he says, you have been born again. Where'd we hear that? We heard that right at the very beginning in, in, in verse 3. This concept of born again into a living hope. We began this whole section, began this letter with the idea of being born again into a living hope. Here, to conclude this section, Peter says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable We began by being born again into an imperishable inheritance. We conclude with the concept of imperishable seed. We began with being born again into a living hope. We conclude with the idea of being born again through the living and abiding word of God. Now what's very interesting here is that in the English you would just go right by this. But in the Greek there's a difference Two very different words are used for the word word in this last section. When Peter says in verse 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He's using the Greek concept of logos there, translated word. Logos is the idea of the statement itself, the message that is made. Okay, it is often used like when it's referring to Christ himself as the revelation, the statement, the message, the revelation of God. You could give it a capital L, Logos, and call it Christ himself, the revelation of God. It doesn't have to be Jesus when this word for word is used, Logos, but if it's ever referring to Jesus as the word of God, it's Logos that's used. But when you get a little bit further, after the discussion about flesh like grass and the flower of grass, he says, in contrasting the temporary nature of grass, the word of the Lord remains forever. And when he says that, he's not using the Greek word logos, he's using the Greek word rhema. Now, what he's not saying there is, oh no, I was talking about Jesus, and when I start talking about last forever, now I got to use a different word because Jesus doesn't last forever. That's wrong. It's an incorrect conclusion. What he's saying here is that the spoken word itself, that which was spoken, that which was uttered, that which was given to you, revealed to you, the spoken word itself remains forever. We already know that Christ remains forever. That is literally the foundation of our faith. But what he's affirming here is that the message that has been given to them, the spoken word, which has come from Christ himself, that word is also 
remaining forever. And what is that word? Well, he tells us that the word is the good news that was preached to you. Literally, the rendering of that last statement, this now is the word having been proclaimed to you. The good news, that which is proclaimed. Now, before I stood up here, Tom read to you from a, what some would call a disheartening passage in John chapter 6. Jesus gets up and he preaches some very interesting concepts about himself. He uses some imagery that is uncomfortable even to people today. The lack of understanding of what he's communicating by his flesh as food and his blood as drink. And it says in scripture that people don't understand and they walk. This is weird. I don't understand it. I'm out of here. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, are you going to leave also? And who answers him? Peter. Peter's always quick to answer. I love that about him. Sometimes it's an absolute mess, but he's quick to answer. And here he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Like, where else are we going to go? Because here's what he's recognized. You have the words of eternal life. Now, if we look at the contrast of the two, logos, the word itself, the message, and rhema, the actual words, what he's saying here is rhema. You have the words of eternal life. But what he's also recognized is that he is himself the word of God. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And it's a beautiful conclusion point because that's exactly what Peter is doing in this opening chapter. He began with the idea of living hope, being born again into a living hope as it relates to us. He concludes it with, you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Focus on Christ. He began with this idea of an imperishable inheritance. Again, the blessing that we receive. He concludes with the idea of an imperishable seed. That which is Christ. Pointing back to Christ. He begins with the idea of how we have been blessed. He concludes with the idea of he who is the blessing. Jesus. Resurrected. Glory. And look at the last contrast here. I'm going to draw you back to verse 21. Where he's talking about Jesus, again, reinstate, re, reaffirming the value of Christ and the value of the infinite sacrifice, the infinitely precious sacrifice of Christ. He concludes the statement in verse 21 by saying, through him, through Christ, we are believers in God who raised him, Christ, from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This contrast of the glory that was received in Christ from God as a result of faithful submission to the Father and resurrection and glory. He contrasts that in verse 24. All flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but it is the word of the Lord that remains forever. At the end of the day... You can begin with the focus on the imperishable inheritance, how we have been blessed, but you'd better finish at the foundation point, which is Christ, he who is the blessing, because everything else fades away.
Every other glory is temporary. Everything else is gone. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are, you have revealed your grace in Christ. And I pray that you would cause us to set our hope fully in that grace and in Christ. You are greatly to be praised as the holy God. You are completely other and set apart for a purpose that is above and beyond any purpose that we as human beings can understand or emulate or know or live out ourselves. Thank you for being that. Cause us, Father, to walk in obedience to the command to be holy, to set ourselves apart, to not walk and form and fashion ourselves in the manner of ignorance when we did not have relationship with Christ. You are Father and impartial judge, worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Thank you for being Father. Thank you for giving ear to our concerns. Thank you for your love. But Father, don't let us impose upon your grace. Remind us that you are not just Father, but also impartial judge, so that we might conduct ourselves with fear. We might respect you. We might recognize the infinite value, the infinite preciousness of the sacrifice of Christ and the payment that was, that was made that ransomed us from death. And Father, that we would not presume upon your grace. And Father, in so doing, as we walk in obedience to these commands and the vitality and genuineness of unfailing faith is demonstrated, I pray first and foremost that it would be demonstrated to one another as we love each other earnestly, intently, with a pure heart. Cause us, Father, to love one another. Told your disciples, that would be the thing that would show all men that we truly belong to you, that we love one another. These commands cause us to be reminded that we are to love you and that we are to love those who are made in your image. And I pray, Father, that you would cause us to not be satisfied in disobedience, in not submitting ourselves to these commands. In Jesus' name, amen.